Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. I'm looking here at the page, 3 is on it, so I just said it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 18 is our passage this morning as we come to the close of this chapter and may or may not finish this closing part today because there's just so much in there. There's just so much great truth in there that uh, part of it we may break out and and save for next week. But I want you to hear what the writer to the book of Hebrews has to say about Jesus. I want you to remember this as you read through Hebrews. We've talked about this as we study through Hebrews. The sole purpose of the, of the writing of this book by the author is that Jesus Christ might be exalted as the only way, as the only hope. You have a group of people here who are Jewish believers, Hebrew believers, who are in danger of turning back. They place their faith in Christ. They understand that. But there is this tug on them back toward uh, the, the legal system, the law. And, and the writer is saying, listen, you've got to see the glory of Christ. You've got to see the person of Jesus in this if you're going to understand what you have now and what you cannot turn your back on. I mean, that's important to him. And so all the way through here, you're going to hear about Jesus being the great high priest. In chapter 3, he's going to deal with it. In chapter 5, he's going to come back to it because he wants us to see that there is only one priest. There's only one high priest, and he's not someone on earth now, but he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our great high priest. He intercedes on our behalf before the Father. He is the only mediator between God and man, the only mediator between God and man. And so... The writer wants us to see very clearly the significance and the importance of Jesus Christ. In this passage, he's continuing to deal with that as he has been in these first two chapters about Jesus being greater than the angels and, and Jesus being one who has brought many brethren with him. That is, he has brought you and me who have trusted in him along with him into the presence of God, adopted into the family of God like we talked about last week. And then we come to verse 14. And the writer says this, therefore, and remember anytime therefore is there, it's, it's referring back to what has just been talked about. Therefore, on the basis of the scriptures I just quoted, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Through death, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is the word of God. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. I don't know how much of you have <coughs> excuse me, studied a lot of church history, but most of the heresies in the early church uh, surrounded the person and the nature of this man Jesus. 
most of the heresies that were later condemned by the church grew out of a trying to grapple with and understand who Jesus was. Let's face it, there had never been anybody like him and there has never been anybody like him since. He was a unique individual in every sense of that word, in the broadest sense of that word. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. And yet, what does that mean? And so they wrestled with that throughout all of early church history in the early church. There was one preacher from Alexander of Egypt, in Egypt, who wrote, his name was Arius, and he rose up and said, well, we believe that, that however great Jesus was, and he was great, he didn't die, deny that, however powerful and however much authority he carried with him, all of those things were to be acknowledged, but he was less than the eternal and almighty God. In other words, he was a man, he was a human being just like we were, and he had upon him some of the attributes of deity, but he was not the same as God. He was not of one essence and of one nature with God. He was a man who was a great prophet, even greater than being just a great prophet. He, was, he, he, pertain, he contained some of those attributes, but he was not the same as, he was not equal to the eternal and almighty God. Some forms of that took on the, the idea that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, you remember that story? And, and when he was baptized in the River Jordan, at that moment there descended from heaven a voice and a, and a dove like the Holy Spirit that lit upon him and, and, and the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and many believe, okay, at that point, Jesus became the Messiah. He, he became he received the Spirit of God and became different from other men. He took upon himself at age 30 or thereabout this concept of deity. And then when he went to the cross and he said, uh, into your hands I commend my spirit, at that point he, he left, the deity part left so that the man might hang there and die. And Arius and, and various variations of that have plagued the church ever since. There was another group of people the doceus, uh, which comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. Now the docetists, they, they believed or held that Jesus was divine. He was deity in every amount. But he only seemed to be a man. He was more something of a phantom. He seemed to be a man. He appeared to be a man. When you looked at him, you saw the, the appearance, the shape, the form of a man. However, he didn't really have a body. He was a phantom. And so he really couldn't die and he couldn't suffer uh, as we talk about Jesus dying and suffering on the cross. So you had these two strains of, of thought, both heretical, in the early church that had to be dealt with. We still deal with those kind of things today. Who is this man Jesus? You've got some groups, some religions, some cults who will say, well, Jesus was a great man. He was a great teacher. He was a great prophet. I mean, there, there's a lot of things to be admired about Jesus. And yet he was not fully God. And he was not fully man. He was not God-man in the flesh. And we struggle with that. You'll run into that right here in Somerset, Kentucky. Those who cannot, cannot comprehend how God could take on flesh and blood and live among us. The first church council at Nicaea in A.D. 325 dealt with such matters as this. It specifically condemned the Arian controversy or the Arian 
heresy, condemned it as heresy, and it affirmed Jesus' full de deity and full humanity in that discussion. Here's what they said. They, in describing the Lord Jesus Christ, they said he was God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, that's important, not a created being, being of one substance with the Father, and he was made man. In other words, he was God and is God and always has been God, and yet he was made man in his incarnation when he came to live upon the first uh, face of the earth. Baptists have dealt with this throughout history in the Baptist Confession, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is considered the granddaddy of all Baptist uh, confessions of faith. This is what they said. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governed all things he has made, did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof yet without sin being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the, the power of the Most High overshadowing her and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah of the seed of Abraham and David according to the scriptures so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. That is the nature of deity, the nature of humanity. Joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ. The only mediator between God and man. So the Baptists in London, and that later became the Philadelphia Confession on this earth. They pretty much adopted it. And that's where Baptists stood for generation upon generation about who Jesus was. He was very God and very man. He was completely God-man. Southern Baptists even dealt with that subject in their Baptist faith and message. In the latest one of 2000, which is the same statement about the Son of God or God the Son as was in the, the 1961 version and the 1925 version, uh, this is what the Baptist Faith and Message said under Article 2, which is God, and subsection B, which is God the Son. He said Christ, they said Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. He honored the divine law by his personal obedience. And in his substitutionary death on the cross, he made provision for the redemption of men from sin. He was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is affected the reconciliation between God and man. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He now dwells in all believers as the living and ever-present Lord. That's how it's been expressed careful to say that there is no separation, there is no division. 
Jesus Christ is not half man and half God. He is not half God in the sense that he was in the beginning and he was for all eternity past. He's always been. And then he became a man and sort of gave it up. Now some people believe that when he took on that flesh, when Paul talks about in Philippians, for he emptied himself, taking on the form of a man, that he gave up all his divine attributes, that everything was gone. He emptied himself completely of everything divine and just became a man. That is the heresy that has been decried by the church. Paul was not talking about that. In his emptying himself, what he did was he added something rather than subtracting something. He emptied himself by taking up on the form of man. He emptied himself of the glory in which he lived. He emptied himself of heaven where he resided and he took up residence here on earth among sinful men, among sinful women, so that we might see the glory of God expressed through him on this earth. He is not half man, half God. He's not God some of the time, man some of the time. He is 100% God and 100% man eternally and completely. Now the writer here wants us to see what that means. Why that is important. Why it is that he took home on a body and why he lived among us. And, and here he's dealing with Jesus becoming a man. Therefore, since the children, that is you and me who are now children of God by the adoption of God into his family, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Now, he just makes clear there that Jesus was the divine Son of God, eternal, begotten, not made, and yet he took upon flesh and blood for a very specific purpose. And it's the purpose that he deals with in these passages. It's his role as priest, and he'll talk about that more later on in and we'll see that exalted even higher. But here's the reason. Verse one, uh, verse 14, halfway through it, after it says he partook of the same, that, in order that, so that, through, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The very first thing that this writer wants us to understand is that Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, in his death on the cross, has, as we would put it, defeated death. Death is defeated. Death no longer has a claim over us. Death no longer has a, a fear for us or should not have a fear for us because we have seen that our great high priest has defeated the cause of fear for death. He took upon flesh and blood that he might render powerless Satan who had the power of, of death. And then verse 15, and he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, theologian, wrote a volume several hundred years ago entitled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's a masterpiece looking at the atonement and what Christ has accomplished. The death of death in the death of Christ. That's what the writer here is saying. Death has been defeated. Death has died. It no longer has a fear over us. I, 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 I will use this Tuesday in, a fu in the funeral of Maydale Whitlock, but I, I always loved visiting Maydale. As sick as she was, and in as much pain as she was, uh, she may have not liked the pain, and she did not like the suffering, but that woman never, ever feared death. She knew what her Savior had done. And she knew that the moment that her eyes closed for the last time, 
and she experienced physical death in this body that she would be alive like she has never been before in all of her life and she didn't fear death because she knew that she was going to be ushered in to the presence of her Lord because to be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. She knew she would see Jesus Christ, the one she had loved, the one she had served, the one she had prayed to for so many years and the one who had been with her through all the suffering she had been through. The writer here wants you to understand, wants me to understand that death should not hold us in slavery. Death should not cause us to fear. Death should not, call, death should not cause us to, to stand trembling before it because our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ, has defeated death, has crushed death. Death has died in the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants us to see in verses 14 and 15. It's so very important. And he says that He's able to help. In verse 15, uh, 16, he says, For assuredly he, that is Jesus, does not give help to the angels. Uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't take hold of the angels and lead them. But he takes hold of, he helps those who are the descendants of Abraham, those who are adopted into the family, those who are his brethren, his brothers and his sisters, by virtue of adoption of the family. Those are the one he helps. He is able to help. So the first thing he wants to see is that death is defeated. Death has died. The second thing is that he is able to help. He's able to help those who have need. He's able to come to the aid, it says in verse 18, of those who are tempted. He's able to come to your aid. He's able to give help. Christ is able to stand with you in the greatest suffering, in the greatest grief, and in the greatest temptation. And give aid, give help, give strength. See, our problem is we try to face temptation in our own strength, don't we? We try to say, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm, I've grown, I'm mature, I, I've got all this. And, and we try to go headlong into it by ourselves. The writer is saying, listen, you don't have to, you don't need to, you don't do that. Jesus Christ, because of his death and his burial and his resurrection, because of who he is, God in the flesh, God made man, he's able to help those. He's experienced the things you've been through. He's experienced your pain, your suffering. He's experienced uh, the struggles that you face. He's been tempted, John says in 1 John, in every way that you have, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, everything has tempted him. And yet he's done it without sin. And while you and I haven't done it without sin, he understands what we're experiencing. He can give help to us who are his children. So he kills death, defeats death. He's able to help those who are his children, who are his brethren within the family of God, children, the, children by adoption of the eternal God. And third, in his death, in his incarnation propitiation is made it's my favorite word in all the Bible it's only used four times twice by Paul in Romans once by uh, the Apostle John in 1 John 2 2 and then here in this particular verse propitiation it's a word you ought to know I told you last week about the book Knowing God and how the chapter on children of God on adoption is the greatest 
thing I've ever read on it. Well, the other chapter I mentioned was the heart of the gospel, and it's all about propitiation. So I encourage you, we have them in our book nook. We got 10 more copies this week. Get one and read those two chapters and then read the whole book because it's all great. But the point that is made in this is that it's an important concept of what salvation is all about. Several weeks ago, and he's not here today, so I probably shouldn't tell a story on him. Uh, so don't tell Pat Jenkins that I did this. Uh, just keep it between us. Uh, I went through a physical with Pat a few weeks ago, and or maybe a month or so ago, and went through all those tests, all the blood and everything else, and he drew all those fluids. And, and it's good that your doctor has your cell phone so he can just text you the results, you know. And so he sent me this text after all the blood work had been done, all the tests had been done, and he said, everything is WNL. And that was it. So I texted him back and I said, what is WNL? And he wrote me back and he said, oh, that's within normal limits. Now you know how I felt the first time you used propitiation. So, <laughs> and so that made sense. So uh, I want to be sure you understand propitiation. Propitiation is an important concept, but a word that we don't use often. John uses it in John 2, 2 to show that, that this salvation, this redemption, this work of God is not just for the Jews, but it's for the whole world. It's for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, not just for the Jews who had thought they could hold on to it and keep it for themselves. This propitiation, as Paul used it, is the way that we are set free from unrighteousness and, and made righteous in a very real sense of the word, or imputed righteousness by the work of Christ through the cross. The way the writer of Hebrews uses it here is much the same way. He says in verse 17, he has, he has had to be made in the likeness of brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I want you to understand that salvation has two dimensions and goes in two directions. We typically talk about salvation as it's directed toward us. We are redeemed. We are set free. We are forgiven. We are, are imputed the righteousness of Christ. Uh, and, and we are clothed in, in robes of righteousness by Christ through the work he does in our life. And, and, and that's a normal thing to some degree because we are always somewhat, even in our redemptive state, a self-centered people. We're interested in what Christ has done for us, what Christ has done in that redemption act toward you and me. And so we talk about salvation, redemption, and all of these things, all very important terms to understanding this thing called salvation. But there is also a dimension of Christ's work on the cross that is not directed toward us, but is directed toward God. Now, you may not have ever thought about that, but that's what he's talking about here in propitiation. Because propitiation is a word that literally means appeasement or satisfaction. If you look at the scripture, the scripture is very clear that sin in everybody's life demands a particular thing, doesn't it? What does it demand? Death. Because Paul said in Romans 1 and 2, for the wrath of God is being poured out on all unrighteousness and all ungodliness in every person. So unrighteousness and ungodliness are two words that 
that are more specific in nature, but they carry with it the idea of sin. And, and, and the writer, all through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, shows that God has wrath towards sin. He hates sin. He destroys sin. He must reject sin. He must punish sin. He must deal with sin. There is no excuse. And there is no exception to that. God has to do it. So how do we get out of that? It's one thing to say that we are born again and we're given new life in Christ. But what does it mean? What happens to that wrath? Because folks talked about this you still sin you're still disobedient even in your deemed state and the scripture says that God's wrath is poured out on all sin what happens to that wrath well according to the scriptures it was propitiated for in the death of Christ it was appeased in the death of Christ it was satisfied in the death of Christ for all who believe for every single person who believes it has been dealt with. God's wrath has been turned away. God's wrath has been satisfied in your life and my life if we are in Christ Jesus. But that was a work that went toward God. God's wrath was coming down hard and Jesus Christ in his atoning death turned the wrath away so that you and I will never suffer the wrath of God if you're in Christ. You'll never experience the wrath of God, the anger of God, the hatred of God towards sin because our Savior, Jesus, has satisfied it. He has dealt with it. He has handled it on our behalf. He has helped us. Packer, in that chapter on propitiation, the heart of the gospel, and I believe it is the heart of the gospel, says three things about propitiation he says propitiation is the work of God himself so it's a beautiful picture in scripture that God himself said I want to satisfy my wrath toward my people toward their sin and so he sent his son into the world it is a work of God it is a work of God himself that propitiation can be made had he not ordained it had he not planned it, it never would have happened secondly Packer says that propitiation is was made by the death of Christ. You remember when he, stood, he hung on the cross and he cried out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Evidently with a loud voice and with an agonizing voice. What was happening there was he was feeling the wrath of God for all of our sin as he took our sins upon himself and he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we who have no righteousness might become the righteousness of God. And so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God was being poured out and it was through that death and through him receiving that wrath that we don't have to. I, I you know, I... I cannot, we've had films and movies about the death of Christ. I think of the Passion of the Christ several years ago by Mel Gibson. And it vividly displayed, vividly displayed all of the physical suffering of Christ. Perhaps a little more graphic than most of us wanted him to. But that wasn't the bad part of the crucifixion. That wasn't the hard part of the crucifixion. Physical pain, physical, I mean it's bad. Beating and lashings and 
being nailed to a cross, that's bad. But the real horrors of the cross came when he took upon himself our sin and the wrath of God was poured out against it. The, uh, the Apostles' Creed has a phrase in it that says, and he descended into hell. And, and many people have taken that and interpreted that as well. After he was put in the grave, he went on down to hell and he preached the gospel and everybody there saw that he was the Christ and they believed and then they went with him into heaven and he rescued everybody out of hell. That's not what that means. It says he descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed. It literally means that, that he took upon himself the wrath of God. That's what hell is, folks, is the wrath of God over uh, to every unbeliever who has not been propitiated for. And here we have the wrath of God taken away, taken on by Christ. So much so that he felt agony and separation and the hell of hell hanging on the cross. He descended into hell on our behalf on the cross that we might know the propitiation for our sin. And then the third thing Packer says about this is that it propitiation manifests God's righteousness. Manifest his righteousness. It allowed him to remain just and righteous and yet forgive and redeem the unjust. It allowed him to be the just and the justifier, as Paul puts it in Romans. Just the just and the justifier. He could redeem us. He could save us. And yet not lose one iota of his righteousness or his justice in that death. So in the death of Christ, in this God-man, fully God, fully man, death is defeated. He's able to help those who are his brethren. And propitiation is made. I think the thing that the writer wants to make clear in these five verses that we read this morning is just simply this. He is like you. He is for you. And he is with you. Take that away from this today. He is like you. He suffered the temptations. He suffered the struggles. He suffered the pain. Just like we do without sinning. He is like you in every respect except for that one dimension. We sin, we break, we give in. And sometimes we don't even give in or break, we rush into it. He never did. He's for you. He gave himself for you. He gave his life. He, he went to the cross. He suffered in all things like us, that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. That is, he opened the way for us to be in relationship with the living God. Relationship that had been broken thousands and thousands of year before, years before in the fall. So he's like you and he's for you and he's with you. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's able to be there present by his Holy Spirit. He is with you in all things. 
and can lift you up and strengthen you and move you through it and help you through it. No matter how difficult, no matter how dark, no matter how painful it might be, He is like you. And He is for you. And He is with you. That is a glorious, glorious thought. And that's what the writer wants you to understand. He wanted those early Christians, those early Hebrew Christians to get a grasp of it so they would understand the magnitude of who Christ is. But no less so does he want Grace Baptist Church and the church of Jesus Christ in the world in 2010 to understand that same great truth. He is like you. He is for you. And he is with you if you are in him. If you are in him, you have placed your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a part of the redeemed where you have been forgiven and you have been cleansed and you have been given the righteousness of Christ uh, uh, imputed to your account, God's wrath has been turned away. That you might walk in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not just saved by grace, but continue in grace. Continue to walk in His grace, empowered by His grace, strengthened by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your brother, your elder brother, your pioneer, as we talked about last week, who blazed the trail that we might follow and became our elder brother by our adoption into the family. And He cares more about you than you even care about yourself cares more about you than your mother does, your father, your husband, your wife, your children. He cares about you perfectly, completely. And he gives us aid because we are the descendants of Abraham. We are descendants of Abraham through Christ Jesus. We are grafted in to the family of God. That's a glorious truth. It's something we should rejoice in and thank Him for every single day that we live. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your grace grateful for your redemption. We're grateful for new life. We're grateful, Lord, for propitiation. Father, I pray that this day you would be gracious to us. Father, I pray for men and women, young people here this morning who do not know you. I pray that your Holy Spirit will come upon them and open their eyes and their heart to see and believe know their own sin to be able to see their need for a Savior and see that Jesus Christ is the only Savior the only mediator the only one who can help Father I pray this day that you would move in hearts and lives of men and women who are living in some level of disobedience 
and they've excused it that they well they're just human father I pray that you show them that they may be human but they have a God man a human God man who understands and who can give help in their weakest time in their most difficult time to repent and follow you father do your work in your way for your glory and for our edification and strengthening for this is my prayer in Jesus name